good to sing together with God's people, isn't it? I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them. We're going to be in Colossians. Oh, thank you. Somebody reminded me. Children are dismissed to children's church. Saw somebody whispering to me in the congregation, and I thought, what have I done wrong? Is my zipper down? We are in Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6. If you're using the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 835, 835, Colossians 4, 2 through 6. One of the things we do together um, as a church, when we hear God's God's word read on Sunday morning, we stand to show respect for God. So let's do that to show respect for God and his word as we hear from Colossians 4, 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You can be seated as we pray. God, as we turn to your word this morning, we know that we need it. It is our bread. It's what sustains us, it's what keeps our minds from going off into the things they should not go off into. We are people who need to hear from you, and so we pray that as we look to this passage, you would speak to us, and that we would have ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. The last few weeks, we've been doing kind of a mini-series on the family, The passage right before this in Colossians dealt with the different household relationships, and so we decided to take kind of an excursus to deal with that. But here we are, we are back in Colossians. And I think it's kind of like going to a class reunion. Some of you who are older have done this, and you see a face and you're like, I know I should know that person, but you can't remember their name, you can't remember the specifics. And so we've been away for a a while now from Colossians, and we come back to it, and hey, I know I should know this book, I know I should know where we're at, we've been in this now for several months, but I just kind of forget exactly where we're at, I don't know exactly what's going on. So let me just refresh you, kind of lay of the land in Colossians. We've talked about Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7, is kind of the the crux of the letter, this is the, the theme of the letter. And it says, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. So it's this idea of the Christ you received is the Christ you're to grow in. We talked about it a little bit like if your Christian walk is, is, uh, you, you came to Christ and you were digging for gold and you found a little bit of gold, so you embraced Christ and But then it seems like in this little hole that we've dug, the gold has run out, run dry. You're tempted to go digging into other holes looking for that gold. But the message of Colossians is, no, don't go digging in other holes. Instead, dig deeper here. 
And Colossians breaks down into two main parts. So you have uh, the first chapter or so that focuses on the sufficiency of Christ. This Christ that you have received, look how great he is. And that runs up through 2.5, and then 2.6 and 7, that, that key verse, those two key verses, are the hinge that link the first part with the second part of the letter. And the second part of the letter is really saying, okay, this is what it looks like to be rooted and established in Christ. This is what it looks like to walk in Christ. And the first thing that Paul addresses in that second section is in chapter 2 where he says, these are all the things that you shouldn't be looking for meaning in. These are the, kind of, this is the different religious systems that are out there that try and add to Christ. Don't be fooled by all that. Stay in Christ. So to walk in Christ means not being distracted by all these other things. And then starting in chapter 3, it deals with kind of our ongoing life in Christ. So 3, 1 through 8, focus on our heart, what our heart should be like. And 3, 9 through 17, focus on our relationship with believers. And then 3, 18 through 4, 1, focus on household relationships. And then capping this section off, 4, 2 through 6, which focuses on our relationship with outsiders. Outsiders is just a term for those who are outside the Christian faith, so unbelievers. So our passage today then giving our, uh, kind of getting our lay of the land, is talking about how a Christ-centered, rela- or a Christ-centered life, a life where Christ is everything, what does that kind of look, life look like as we interact with unbelievers? Now, when I announce at the front of a sermon that we're going to be talking about our relationship with unbelievers, There might be some who get a little squirmish or uneasy. This is going to be one of those sermons where I feel really guilty. Except for a zealous few who are really good about making the gospel known in their community and making the gospel known in their relationships, a lot of us are like, I know that's what I should be doing. I know God has saved me and I want that good news to be known to others, but I just, I don't do it like I should. We Christians are good at kind of those guilt complexes, right? We're never good enough. We're never doing enough. So you hear, I'm going to be preaching on this. You hear the passage read. hear the theme announced. Gulp a little bit. Or maybe you're uneasy too because it seems like there's never agreement on what a church should be about when it relates to reaching out to the unbelievers around us. So should we have a program where we go door to door and share the gospel with people door to door? Should we train people with an evangelistic message so they could go out on the, on the streets and uh, you know, go to the playgrounds and things like that and strike up conversations with people and share the gospel? Do we need to have uh, a big revival meeting in our church and invite people in so that we can have somebody present the gospel to them at a big revival meeting? Do we need to be doing less at church so that we can be more involved in the community? Or do we need to be doing more in the community so that we can get people into church and figure out ways to get the community into our church? Well, we can take a collective deep breath because my goal today is not to guilt you into being more bold with the gospel. Nor is it my 
desire today to lay out my evangelistic vision for the church. I have one goal today, and that's just to unfold what the scriptures say. And I think as we look at what the Bible says, you'll find that what the Bible says is unexpected, helpful, and emboldening on this topic. Specifically in our passage, Paul discusses how we should relate to outsiders in three specific spheres of our life. So how we should relate to outsiders in our prayers, verses 2 through 4, how we should relate to outsiders in our actions, in verse 5, and how we should relate to outsiders in our words, in verse 6. So let's begin with the instructions on prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, verse 2 says, right? Devote yourselves to prayer. Now, it's kind of like, uh, let's put it like this. Let's say through some, you know, you can use your imagination how it could work out, but that you have a private butler who is at your service whenever you need him. If that were true... Throughout your day, there would be frequent uses of this private butler to get things done, to handle whatever you need to get done, right? Well, the Bible teaches that God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. He's accomplishing his purposes through our prayers. That's not a perfect one-to-one comparison, of course. But to know that my prayers are being used by the God of the universe, God Almighty, to accomplish His purposes. Well, that, in my mind, in a different way, far exceeds what it would be like to have a private butler. And so we need to be people who, if that's true, we are people who commit ourselves and give ourselves to frequent, habitual prayer. We need to be devoted to prayer. And he says, devote yourself to prayer in two different ways. He says, being watchful and thankful. Or watchful, that means to be awake or alert to the spiritual realities around us. And to be thankful, well, we're instructed to pray. We're called to pray. It's a duty of ours to pray. We're to devote ourselves to it. But this duty is also a delight that God is allowing me to be a part of what he is doing, that the God of the universe hears my voice and uses my prayers to do what he is doing, that I have access to the almighty God, our heart should well up with thanksgiving when we pray. But there's this, so the verse two really is more just a general comment about prayer. But then the focus on the lost or the unbelievers comes more into focus as you look at verse three. It says, in verse 3, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now I want to stop for a second. I want to just ask, when you think of praying for unbelievers and praying in light of the fact that there are unbelievers in this world, how do you think about praying for them? Maybe, maybe think about the last time you did pray for that. What was it that you pray for? I think a lot of us, myself included, 
the focus of our prayer is for the unbeliever himself or herself. That they would be able to know the goodness of God's kingdom and, and the grace and the joy and the righteousness that can be theirs if they place their faith in Christ. The cleansing from our broken hearts and the healing. That's, so we pray that they would be able to see that and realize that and be transformed. Our focus is on the unbeliever. But did you notice, and this is, uh, this is groundbreaking and revolutionary, I think, but did you notice what Paul asked for prayer for? He doesn't pray, he doesn't say, Colossians, would you pray for the people who will be hearing my message that they would repent and believe the good news? Now, elsewhere in the Bible, you know, that's a, it's a good thing to pray for unbelievers. I'm not saying we ought not to, but it's interesting what Paul focuses his prayers on, prayers on. There's two things specifically. The first is he prays that the door would be opened for his message. That is that he would have more and more opportunities to proclaim the gospel. So what he's praying for is an increase in the number of times that he is able to make the gospel known. And then, what is the other thing he prays in verse 4? And pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. That is, he wants more opportunities to proclaim the gospel, and when he proclaims it, he wants to proclaim it faithfully. Proclaim the gospel message in its entirety, clearly, accurately, faithfully. That's what he wants them to pray about. So his focus in his prayers is all about this gospel message, its increase, and its accurate presentation. Now, uh, let's say you're a football general manager, and you believe that football is won, the game is won on the offensive and defensive lines. If that's the case, and through the draft and free agent signings and player developments, you're going to focus on acquiring good offensive and defensive linemen. Or let's say you're a Hollywood producer. And you believe what makes a great Hollywood movie is the script. The great dialogue. If that's what you believe will make a great Hollywood movie, then you spend your time and your resources trying to draw in and develop good writers. And so when Paul says that what he is asking for prayer for, the thing that he is prioritizing is prayers that the gospel itself would have more opportunities to be proclaimed and that when it's proclaimed, it would be proclaimed accurately. He is saying that's what's valuable. That's where the power is. That's where it's won and lost. That's what matters. He's saying that he believes, as he says in Romans 1, That the gospel, the good message about Jesus Christ, that message, that news, is where there is power for salvation. Now we get it backwards, don't we? We get get fixated on 
on numbers, right? So, so when, you, when, you talk in, when you talk to people who are passionate about evangelism or who, who are evangelists or revivalists or whatever, they like to tell you, this is how many decisions were made for Christ. This is how many people signed the pledge card. This is how many people walked the aisle. This is how many people were baptized. And that's what gets people excited. Oh, that many people. Good job. And as a result of fixating on the numbers and trying to get more and more people, we often try and massage the gospel a little bit. Just tweak it in a certain way so that it'll hit people just the right way. Our focus is not so much on getting it clear and accurate as it is on saying it in just the right way that will move this person or that person to come forward or to sign the pledge card or to do whatever it is that we're trying to get them to do so we feel good about the numbers. But Paul is convinced that when it's when the gospel is presented accurately, God will do the work in drawing souls to himself. Jesus said the same thing. He looked out and he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. That is, to increase the amount of people proclaiming the gospel message. The issue isn't that there aren't enough people ready to be converted or that God can't work through his gospel message to draw people into himself. The issue is that we are not getting that gospel out. And so, we need to understand when we think about prayer as it relates to people who don't know the good news of the gospel, that what our focus and priority should be on is praying that this gospel message would go out increase and be presented faithfully. So I want to, in light of this, I want to give you a challenge. I want to give our whole church a challenge. In fact, I don't think that's really the right way to say it. Because I need the challenge as much as you do. And I don't think it's me who's giving the challenge. I think it's God who's giving us the challenge. So I think God is giving us as a church this challenge. God is challenging us to pray that God would open doors for the people of this church to make the gospel known frequently and faithfully. Pray that God would open the doors for the people of this church to make the gospel known frequently and faithfully. We need to devote ourselves to this kind of prayer. I think this is the challenge that God is giving us. Can we make that prayer a staple in our prayer life? Maybe you want to do it every day as you drive to work. Or if that's too much, Tuesdays and Thursdays when you drive to work. Or... Every time when you're making breakfast, pouring milk on the cereal, frying up your egg or whatever, I'm going to pray for that. Or every night with my spouse before we go to bed. Whatever it is, right? Make this a regular part of your prayers. Well, after calling on the Colossians to pray for the gospel to go out, Paul's focus on outsiders comes into clearer focus. They, uh, you see, in Colossae, the, the church was small, 
They were surrounded by people who, as he said, were outsiders, people not part of the Christian faith. And uh, I'd say, as best we can tell what was going on in Colossae, they were more surrounded by unbelievers than we are here in Georgetown. So this, how do I actually interact and, and, you know, have relationship with people who have not been changed by the gospel like I have? Do we separate from them and say, okay, we're going to live our lives over here and you live your life over there? What do we do? How do we relate to them? Well, let's look at verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. There's two things. Just two things that we're called to do. Be wise and make the most of every opportunity. Well, what does it mean to be wise? Look back with me at chapter 1. This is why it's so good to preach through a book of the Bible. When you hear be wise, you think, okay, Solomon, I need to be able to make good decisions about you know, chopping babies in half or whatever his you know, brilliant plan was. To If you don't know the story, he didn't end up chopping the baby in half. It's okay. Um, but look, was, as this idea of wisdom actually is here throughout Colossians. And look what he says in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Again, on the theme of prayer. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he's praying that they would know the will of God, that they would have knowledge of the will of God so that it would result in wisdom. What does that mean? He spells it out in verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. In other words, wisdom, for Paul in Colossians, all he means by that is allowing this message of God's gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus Christ, and all that entails, you know, the whole scriptural unfolding of that message, to let that message so affect you that you become wise, which means to live in a manner worthy of this gospel, to bear fruit in every good deed. So this is just talking about living a Christ-transformed life. So when it says, how do we live towards outsider? Be wise. It's not saying that you need to, you know, know what stocks to invest in. It's saying live a Christ-transformed life in front of them. Let them see what your life is like as the gospel transforms you. I told you, you know, at the beginning, you might feel a little guilty or squirmish or whatever. Really, what it's saying is the way we interact with people who are not Christians is all about our heart being transformed by the gospel. That's where we need to start. That's been our theme in Colossians, right? What you need is Christ. You don't need another program. You don't need a book off of a bookshelf. What you need is Christ. And as Christ increasingly holds sway over your heart, as you know his will through the scriptures more and more, you're going to live a life that is showing and testifying to the fact that you have been transformed by Christ. It's the first thing he says. 
live out the Christ-transformed life that you should have to begin with, that I've been talking about all along. And then he says, redeem the time, or make the best use of the time. I'll get it exactly right. I'd turn the page. So, make the most of every opportunity. Now, the Greek literally there reads, buy up the time, which is why the King James Version translated that so beautifully and so famously, redeem the time. The idea here is that we need to take time that would otherwise be used for worldly purposes and use it for Christ and his purposes. What does that mean? What does that look like? Take the time that we'd otherwise be using for worldly purposes and use them for Christ and his purposes. I wanted to give you just some specific examples. These are not the only ways to do it. In fact, if you think oh, I can do that, I'll do that. That's probably not the right way to think. Just think in general, I need to be redeeming the time. I need to be buying up the time. So here are three examples of how that's done. First, uh, my brother-in-law is a church planter in Naperville, Illinois. And when he started his church, there was uh, one of the popular debates going on amongst the people who are joining his church plant was, should I homeschool or should I do public school or private school for that matter? And he said, look, that's not the right question. Ultimately, the question you need to be wrestling with is how can my choices with my child's education, how can the decisions surrounding that allow me to build relationships with people in the community? So, great, you choose to homeschool. There's certain things that homeschooling allows you to do that allows you to invest in the relationships around you and the community around you that you wouldn't be able to do if you're in public school. So you choose public school? Great, you have this huge platform for building relationships with people to make the gospel known. Build into those relationships. So it just changes the whole way we think if we're saying we need to be buying up the time, redeeming the time. The next two examples are from our own church, so I'm going to embarrass some people. But um, a while back, the Briggs family had their children in soccer in the community. And they realized in the specific program that they were in, they were go, go, going to practice and to this and that, and they didn't have a chance to build relationships with the people around them. So they said, let's just start our own league for little kids. It'll just be a gathering once a week in the park. But that way, as we said, we'll, we'll structure it so that there's time for relationships to be built with people and for us to get to know people at a deeper level. Another example that I want to give you is the Lovelaces. I think probably many of you know that the Lovelaces regularly would have international students into their home. And Judy still does that. She says, we have these people coming from other countries who are desperate to come into an American home and experience American hospitality. So I'm going to use some of my time and some of my resources to invite them into our home to build those relationships. It's just three examples. But it gets you into the mindset of what I'm saying. Buy up the time. Redeem the time. Think about things. Think about how can I be taking my time that I'd otherwise be using for worldly purposes and use, them for, use that time for Christ and his purposes. So, how do we relate to outsiders in our actions? Well, 
Just let the gospel be transforming your heart. Let that Christ-transformed heart be on display at all times, including in your interactions with people who aren't Christians. And then be intentional about building relationships with non-Christians. It's not that complicated. So here's the second challenge that I think God is giving me and us as a church. Take specific and intentional steps to build meaningful relationships with people who aren't Christians so that they can see your life that's being transformed by the gospel. I want to say it one more time. Take specific and intentional steps to build meaningful relationships with people that aren't Christians so that they can see your life that's being transformed by the gospel. Again, if it's just my voice saying it, reject it. But if you read this verse and understand it, the way I see it is the call from God for us as a church and how we're to behave. But Paul makes clear that living a godly life is not sufficient for reaching the lost. The gospel must be expressed in our words. So look at verse 6. This is how we relate to the outsiders in our words. Verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This verse is critical to understand correctly. And I think it's somewhat revolutionary. At least it might be for some of us. It's a big deal. First, it's a big deal because you'll notice it's not calling for direct evangelism. So Paul himself, and and you saw this in his prayer, he practiced direct evangelism. He went out and said, I am looking for opportunities where I can stand up in public and make the gospel known. So it's a right thing to do. That's a good thing to do. But what he calls calls the Colossians to do is not direct evangelism. What he calls them to is what I'd call responsive evangelism. Here's the idea. This This is not a call to retreat. It's not say, oh, well, you don't really need to make the gospel known. In Paul's mind... If you take this this world, the secular world all around us, and you take someone whose life is being transformed by the gospel and put them out there in real relationships with people who are secular, it will come up. The opportunities to talk about Christ and to talk about your faith are going to come up. That's Paul's idea, and that's also Peter's idea when he gives advice in 1 Peter 3 on the same topic. So responsive evangelism doesn't mean, okay, I check out and I don't have to share the gospel. Rather, it means as you, as a transformed believer, are living amongst unchristian people, outsiders, there are going to be opportunities to talk about the gospel. So that's the first, I think, groundbreaking truth here. Okay, The general call to believers is not direct evangelism. Again, I'm not saying that's wrong or bad, and if you have a heart for that, praise the Lord. But that's not the general call that Paul is giving us, that God is giving us. It's a call to responsive evangelism, speaking when the, when the opportunities arise. 
But it's also groundbreaking because I think we often hear this phrase, you know, full of grace, seasoned with salt. And we think that's how I need to speak when I'm responding to someone who asks questions about the gospel. So when a gospel conversation comes up, I need to be gracious and I need to have my speech winsome, seasoned with salt. So no, uh, you know, kind of Bible thumping. Let's not try and prove somebody they're wrong. And, you know, the phrase, don't try and win the argument, win the person. Or you don't want to be a, you know, holier than thou know-it-all, staring down your nose at somebody and telling them why they're going to hell and why you're not. Which is all good advice. But, if you look at the syntax of verse 6, that's not what it's talking about. It doesn't allow us to think that that's what it's talking about. It says, your speech should be in this way, so that, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In other words, our normal way of speaking, our normal way of speaking should pave the way for our specific gospel conversations. The grace of God should so salt our everyday speech that we speak of the gospel, that when we speak of the gospel, it's a completely natural transition. Now, I don't know if I've admitted you to this before. It's an embarrassing truth. Um, I'll never forgive my father for this. But I learned to drive stick shift from my wife. And uh, I remember being in the parking lot, and there's nothing as embarrassing as learning to drive stick, right? You just make a fool of yourself for like half an hour. And they keep telling you, oh, just do it like this. And then you do it like that. You know? When you're going through the gears, right, each, each transition from one gear to another is awkward and very noticeable. I think sometimes we approach evangelism like that, right? So I'm in my regular interact with people mode. <laughs> now it's time to share the gospel. I remember when I was in high school, and I had this idea that I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to wear, wear, wear out my message. So in my relationships with people, I would try to never talk about God and never talk about Jesus until that one time this gleaming door showed up and it opened and I was able to step forward and lay out all of the gospel message right there and... That's just kind of how I thought about it. Then when I got to college, I realized I was actually being artificial and fake. Because since God had transformed my heart and my mind, the way I thought and the way I, I, I looked at the world, the way I talked about the world, was, was in light of a God who had saved me and who had made this world and who had redeemed this world. And so I started just talking what was in my head and in my, in my heart. And so I didn't have to, in one conversation, lay out the whole gospel message. But here and there along the way, as I was speaking about God and His grace, it was woven through so that as people knew me, they got to hear glimpses of the gospel. And at times, in result of questions and dialogue, I got to lay out the full gospel message. But it was like somebody who's really good at driving a stick. You know, it's just kind of a natural transition. It's just part of how you drive. So when it says full of grace, I don't think it's talking about gracious speech where you just are kind, which we certainly should be. 
It talked about our heart at the beginning of chapter 3. It talked about kindness, right? But I think it's talking about our speech needs to be full of the grace of God. The grace of God where somebody like me who's broken and sinful and selfish can be forgiven and brought into a right relationship with God who made me to be different than that. And that same grace that's transforming my heart and making me into somebody who resembles Christ is full of his goodness and joy. That grace needs to pervade my conversation. And like the Old Testament sacrifices that were seasoned with salt and created this beautiful aroma then, as the grace of God pervades my speech, there will be this beautiful aroma in my speech. This is a man who has been transformed by grace. So that should be our speech. Now, the Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that means that if your heart, if your heart is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, if God's grace is working its way into your heart and transforming that, it's going to come out in your speech. So this isn't something where you have to come up with some technique. You need to have this stock phrase that this is how you start spiritual conversations. Or this is a a clever way to introduce gospel conversations with somebody. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying this is the overflow of who you are as a transformed person. That God's grace is going to be on your tongue. But I think for many of us, we've actually formed a habit of suppressing that within us because we don't want to offend other people, because we're nervous about talking about those things, because in polite society there are certain topics you avoid. So let me just give you a couple examples of how this kind of grace-filled speech can pervade your life. Now I'm not giving these examples again as a formula. That's the, the exact opposite point of all this. It comes from a heart. But I just want you to, it's so foreign to some of us, I just need to show you it's not weird and freaky. All right, so somebody comes to you and they share something hard that happened in, your, in their life or something that's going on, some health issue or whatever. And you say to them, I'm going to pray for you for that. And then you pray for them for that and pray that God would be using it in their life, that God's grace would be evident in their life and they'd be drawn to God through that and that God would minister to them. And then the next time you see them, you say, I prayed for you that God would be using this for good in your life and that you would know God's grace through this time. Or let's say uh, somebody comes up to you and says, what'd you do this weekend? Well, you can talk about a variety of things you did, but you can say, I heard a really great sermon. Right, great. You can say it it was a message about how the good news of Jesus Christ changes our heart and changes our words. You don't have to get into it at length, but that's something you did this weekend. And, and hopefully, if you're a transformed believer, it's the most important thing you did this week. More important than hockey night in Canada or whatever else you might talk about. Or, again, somebody comes to you and shares some hard thing that they are dealing with. 
Maybe a coworker opens up to you or, or a family member or a neighbor opens up to you, some hard thing they're dealing with, and you went through something similar in your life. Instead of just saying, yeah, I went through that too, and you can talk about how God's grace and the goodness of the gospel sustained you through your ordeal. I think one of the places this is most evident is when there's tension or conflict. Somebody wrongs you. How does God's grace shape your response to that in your words? Instead of becoming bitter and saying biting words and cutting yourself off, you continue to be gracious to that person and kind. Or maybe you do something that was wrong to somebody else. You didn't treat them the way they should. You offended them in a way you didn't intend to. To go to them and say, you know, as a Christian, I realize I mess up all the time. God's gracious with me. But I need to also go and make things right with you. And I want to ask for your forgiveness. I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. Something like that. Or when the gossip starts, right? How do you let the grace of God affect your speech and gossip. Well, certainly you're not going to partake in it. Those are just to get your mind rolling. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Letting God's grace. It doesn't mean that everything you ever talk about is God. Okay, we're, we're people in this world. It's fine to talk about hockey or about the movie that you saw or about whatever's going on in your mind and heart, right? Like, don't be fake and artificial. That's the whole... That's, one of the things I'm saying here, right? It's an overflow of your heart. So the more the gospel, when, when you're in a situation, the gospel or God's word is on your heart, grace is on your mind, that's what you talk about. But there's times when there's other things that you talk about. So again, it's not like become robots that only talk about God. So here's what I think the third challenge is for us. Make a habit of speaking in such a way that it's an overflow of a heart that's been changed by God's grace. That your words are an overflow of a heart that's been changed by God's grace. Make a habit of speaking in such a way that your words are an overflow of a heart that's been changed by God's grace. I told you that I wouldn't give you my program for the church's evangelism. That I wasn't going to guilt you make you feel bad for not doing enough to make the gospel known. And I hope I haven't. I hope I have just laid out what the scriptures call us to. To pray that God would open doors for people of this church to make the gospel known frequently and faithfully. Will we do that? To take specific and intentional steps to build meaningful relationships with people who aren't Christians so they can see the life that's being transformed by the gospel. Will we do that? To make a habit of speaking in such a way so that our words are an overflow of a heart that's been changed by God's grace. Will we do that? Because that's God's program. And I think if we follow it, We're going to see neat things happen in this church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformed our lives. 
and that has given us new hearts, is growing within us and transforming us, conforming us to the image of your Son. And I pray that would be on display in our lives, that the gospel be central in our prayers, and that our words would be full of grace and overflow of a heart that's been transformed. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.